Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to really get this study on the book of Exodus going. But before we do that, I did just want to continue to welcome all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to Seeds of Truth and this scripture study on the book of Exodus, especially those who are taking time out of their busy schedules listening to this program by way of podcast in the countries of Mexico, Canada, the continent of South America. I see people listening in Western Europe as well, Portugal, France, Spain, Italy. I see South Africa. So I welcome you into this studio. Now, as we are uh, set to begin our reflections into this high drama, that is the book of Exodus. Last week, we took a bird's eye view at the book, and, and tonight, really, we will begin our verse-by-verse verse study of the book. But before I do that, it did come up after last week, at least someone pulled me aside and asked me a question about where the book of Exodus fits in the larger narrative of salvation history. And I, I think that's a great question. Because we do have to situate this book within the larger narrative, and by that I mean the series of books that allows us to read how God worked in salvation history in a narrative, looking at it historically where there is no interruption. So we have 14 books that if you were to put them together are those books that would allow us to read how God worked in salvation history. Genesis, Exodus. Numbers, Joshua Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Ezra Nehemiah, these are two books I think that are often overlooked, Ezra Nehemiah, Maccabees, that's the importance of Maccabees, by the way, and then of course in the New Testament we have the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the one gospel that really takes up the historical narrative, and then the book of Acts, Luke authoring the book of Acts. So we have 14 books that, if you were to put them together, really give us the narrative of salvation history. And the book of Exodus is the second book. So it should come to no surprise then that what we saw in the book of Genesis, and I say what we saw because remember, we took up the book of Genesis for a number of months, right, in our verse by verse study. So it should come to no surprise that what we saw in the book of Genesis is on full display in the book of Exodus. That God is not a deity who is far removed from the world and is only incidentally interested in it. No, no. Rather, God is actively and intimately involved on a deep personal level with his creation and is willing to interact with humanity in the arena of human history. Why? Because God is just not creator, but he is father. And really, my friends, in the ancient world, this is what separates the Christian God from every other religion. Huh? What's more, 
The book of Exodus also reveals that God does not just intrude and work his will in arbitrary ways. No. Rather, he often works in ordinary settings through ordinary human beings, sometimes very inadequate ones, enabling them through his presence and guidance to accomplish seemingly impossible tasks. And I think we need to be aware of this as we read the the book of Exodus, huh? One might think of the words that come to us from James chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, at least they did for me. <laughs> there we read, this is St. James now, chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. For the fervent prayer of a righteous man is very powerful. Elijah was a human being like us. Yet he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain upon the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You know, for many souls, the mere mention of the name Elijah conjures up all sorts of feelings and emotions tied to the awe-inspiring power of God. But what's interesting here is that before James comments on Elijah's fervent prayer that yielded extraordinary results, he first reminds us that Elijah was a, what, quote-unquote, human being like us, a man of like nature, along with calling down the power of God. Brothers and sisters, remember, Elijah also experienced many hardships including deep anguish and torment where he actually asked God to take his life. Not out of despair, but out of torment, anguish. By placing Elijah's, like nature, before Elijah's effectual fervent prayer, James wants us to see that it was by virtue of the divine indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Elijah's heart was moved with an impassioned plea of intervention on behalf of the chosen people. What's my point? Where are we going with this? Well, God uses the ordinary. And in the opening chapter of the book of Exodus, God does not act in the marvelous manner in which he does later in the book of Exodus, that which we always associate with the book of Exodus, right? The splitting of the waters, the ten plagues, so on and so forth. But he acts through the, through the ordinary events of life. Okay? So we have to be present to that truth. All right. Verses 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the offspring of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the descendants of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. All right, so... What was I just saying about the book of Genesis and Exodus? In these opening verses, we have that linking up of the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. 
which is to say we have these two books that were intended to be understood in relationship to each other. Verses 1 to 6 sum up the history of Israel as a clan, right? It certainly is described more thoroughly in the book of Genesis chapters 12 to 50. These six verses, I think, remind us that all that is going to take place in this book is directly related to what has gone before as described in the book of Genesis. I mean, the curse of God in Genesis 3 included hard toil, which is surely the lot of Israel and Egypt. The salvation of mankind, as promised also in Genesis 3, was through the birth of a child. So too, it was through the birth of a child that God provided a deliverer for his people. We will read this more about this in Exodus 2. As men strove to provide themselves with security and significance by the building of a city and a tower, using bricks and mortar, so Egypt sought to secure herself by forcing the Israelites to build cities with bricks and mortar. I mean, compare Genesis 11 with Exodus chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 14 and, and following. And maybe most importantly, the opening verses to the book of Exodus, verses 1 to 7, link the existence and rapid growth of Israel as a nation to the covenant which God made with Abraham, right? The sons of Israel and their families numbered 70. When they arrived in Egypt, a mere clan. But when the sons of Israel leave Egypt, they do so as a what? But great nation. You see how that is all being set up? Uh, something else here. We might read this text in relationship to the book of Matthew. Why the book of Matthew? Well, what does the book of Exodus and the book of Matthew have in common? The emphasis on names, right? You would think in the New Testament, with the word gospel, Matthew might launch into this call of repentance. Believe, repent, the good news is at hand. But what does Matthew do? No, he says, in the opening verses, no less, Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Why was this significant? Well, it recalls the two great covenants. The covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and then the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 verses 10 to 17, where God says to David, I will build from your line a dynasty forever. Huh? So if I'm reading the Gospel of Matthew in the first century, and remember, Matthew is writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience, so they have the Old Testament on their fingertips. They are keenly aware of the significance of those two great covenants. Hence, Matthew says, Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. In other words, <laughs> Matthew is wanting everyone to know that Jesus is the fulfillment to the old covenant, who has come to establish a new covenant, transforming and fulfilling the old, you see. So for the remainder of chapter 1, we have what but the oppression of God's people, right? Again, we read this with Genesis as its backdrop. In Genesis 47, when Joseph brought his family to be with him in Egypt, they came to, to the best of the land, as we read in Genesis 47. Now, it's interesting, even at this time, there was an underlying prejudice against the Israelites as Hebrews. 
Now, as we read in verse 8 and following of chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, we read of a new king. Now, this new king's identity is uncertain, but new is what is key here because he likely represented a new dynasty which would have had no knowledge of Joseph and would have seen the increase of the Israelites, of the Israelite numbers as a threat. This is why in verses 9 and 10 we read, Look, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. He's concerned. The new king is concerned. This new king feared the numerical strength of the Israelites and sought to diminish them. He feared that they would become allies with the enemy against their rule and would overcome them and leave Egypt. Interestingly, everything the Pharaoh feared, what came to pass, right? In spite of his diligent efforts to prevent it. The reason is, of course, that the Pharaoh's plans were contrary to the purposes and promises of God with regard to his people. By the way, my friends, what does the word Pharaoh mean? I was talking earlier about how we might return to the significance of that covenant with David. Well, Pharaoh literally translates as great house. What did we just say about 2 Samuel 7, verses 10 and following? The Hebrew word for dynasty and that promise from God to, to David also translates as temple or house. You catch that? You see, Satan is simply doing what he always does. <laughs> He plagiarizes. In this case, Egypt sought to usurp the plans of God, becoming a great house, but there's only one great house, and that's the house that God establishes, and established through the line of David, which, of course, is fulfilled in the son of David, Jesus Christ, and the church he came to establish. That church, which is today's great house, if it doesn't belong to God, It will disappear. Okay, so with respect to the narrative itself, Pharaoh's plan, which was readily adopted by the people, was to enslave the Israelites and to tighten their control over them. A substantial part of this plan seems to be what? But that of intimidation. Intimidation and oppression. Demoralizing and frightening the Israelites that they would not dare to resist their masters. In addition, for the new king, their value as slave labor would be utilized to strengthen the nation both economically and militarily. Huh? The stored cities of Python and Ramses were built by the Israelites with brick and mortar. Huh? Again, brick and mortar. First century Josephus claims that Israelite manpower also was also used to dig canals. And as recorded in verses 12 and 13, the more they multiplied and spread, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them even harder, ruthlessly. So you can see the growing contempt, right? And contempt is the key word here because we're not talking about a passing anger, but a scorn, a despisal. Someone asked me yesterday about today's culture. What is your deepest concern? We're not angry at one another. No, only if it was anger. 
And anger is a capital sin. It's what anger leads to, contempt. You know, the word contempt comes from the Latin contemptus. It means to scorn, despise, to hate, right? And that never ends well. And certainly there's a, deep, a, a deep-seated contempt growing and festering between the Egyptians and the Israelites. This is just a footnote for now, but as it stands today, what is today? September 26, 2019, there is a lot of contempt. There is a lot of hatred. And the unfortunate thing is, (laughs) hatred blinds us to truth. The truth of what is versus what isn't. Where does the evidence lead? This is the question we need to be asking ourselves. And we can only get there if we first look in the mirror and be reminded of our own sin and our own weakness and our own need to reconcile ourselves with our brothers and sisters in Christ. All right? I don't want to chase that rabbit too far in the hole. (laughs) Okay, verses 15 to 21. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. I love that. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them to do, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and are delivered before the midwives, before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So striking, huh? Those verses, which are so often overlooked, are so important. Here we have the full revelation of an evil man who desired to slaughter the innocent. But also, and I capitalize those two words, but also the extraordinary faith. The extraordinary faith of the midwives who feared God more than Pharaoh. And so they refused to put the infant boys to death. For their fear of God, these midwives were rewarded. With what? But families. And here, my friends, we ought to consider what it means to fear God just so briefly. Especially under the edict of a, of a wicked man. And so we ask the question, what does it mean to fear God? What, what kind of fear do we mean? It certainly is not the fear of God which causes people to flee from every thought and memory of him. No. As something or someone who disturbs and upsets. No. Yeah, this was the state of mind which, according to the Bible, made our first parents after their sin hide themselves from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Huh? But that is not what we're talking about. St. Pope John Paul II reminds us that that this gift is about something much more noble and lofty. It is the sincere and reverential feeling that a person experiences before the tremendous majesty of God, especially when he reflects upon his own infidelity 
and the danger of being, what do we read in Daniel 5, verse 27? Found wanting at the eternal judgment, which no one can escape. That wanting of wanting to do it over again. Brothers and sisters, embrace the here and now because the here and now was the precious gift. The believer goes and places himself before God with a contrite spirit and a humble heart, knowing well that he must await his own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't do this with an irrational fear, but with a sense of responsibility and fidelity to the law. What's more, my friends, the gift of fear is that gift which enkindles affections for our Lord, that that is constantly making more room for God as our beloved. So the fear of the Lord is a gift that makes us deeply aware that our sins will, in the end, rob us from our greatest joys if we do not address them in the here and now. And so it is. As Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 states, the fear of God is the beginning of that prized gift, wisdom. All right. Now, revisiting Shipra and Pu'ah, what do they receive as their reward but families? This is a blessing. This is a blessing. My dear friends, what does it mean to be blessed but to be in favorable standing with God? The Greek word for a blessing, makarios, literally translates as favorable standing. Shipra and Pu'ah were blessed with families to grow in virtue. Family life is a way of blessing not to be shunned or seen as something that takes away from our joys, rather the source and cause of our joy. And how about the fact, and I find this fascinating, that these midwives have names. Does the Pharaoh? No. I think of it. The highest official in all the land is without a name. What might we say today? What's his name again? What's his name again? This man's name, who was feared by hundreds of thousands of people, is now unknown to us. And yet, and yet, the midwives' names, well, we know them. Shepra and Pua. What is the lesson here? Brothers and sisters in Christ, what matters is that God knows your name. If you want to be remembered, remember God in your everyday decision-making. God has given you a name to live up to. And how... How do we do this? Well, look to the midwives. Look to the midwives. Fear God. They were remembered for their fear of God and and their trust and obedience to him. Again, we we turn to the Proverbs. Chapter 10, verse 7. The memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will, drum roll, rot. (laughs) Okay? God cares not about your position or your prestige in life. But only if you fear him and have trusted in his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. If you are his child by faith, he knows you by name. If not, no matter what your earthly splendor or power, you are what? What's his name again? What's that fellow's name? We don't want that. We don't want that. All right. So what of that last verse in chapter one? Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the river, but let every girl live. 
thrown into the river. <laughs> the irony is so rich here. How can you not chuckle and laugh? It is an irony of the richest kind to know that Moses will be rescued by being pulled from the Nile River and that the first two plagues later in the Exodus story involve the what but the Nile. Throw them into the river. Oh. God says to Pharaoh, you, you who thinks he is a great house, I will turn your river of death into a river of life. No doubt the Egyptians saw the Nile as, as the great water of life, but they sought to use it for death. God says to that new king, oh, be rest assured, I will use this river for life, but in ways you can never imagine. And so he does. In this first chapter of the book of Exodus, indeed, we have the beginning of the second chapter to this extraordinary drama. Why did the Ten Commandments draw the audience that it did back in the, when did it come out? I think in the 50s with Charlton Heston as Moses. Because it captivates the heart, the whole narrative. It stirs something within us. And yes, the cinematography back then on the parting of the waters was phenomenal, and, and I'm sure it was part of the reason why it drew the audience that it did. But it's the people within the narrative that draws our greatest attention. Why? Because we see ourselves. We see that tension between vice and virtue, huh? grace and sin. And so as we really begin to unpack this book, we will be unpacking that tension and how to side with virtue and grace so as to overcome our vices and sin. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.